there is no human being with whom we cannot find common ground. But equally, there is no human being against whom we would not commit acts of violence and terror. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Now, today I've changed things up a little bit because I actually had some feedback from one of my guests, uh, Tessa Dunlop. If you haven't listened to it, go back, listen to that. It was with her talking about her new book, Army Girls, which is great. But anyway, Tessa was lots of fun and um, on, on our chat, but she did let me know, and she was absolutely right, that perhaps it's worth thinking about changing things up. So that's what I've done. So rather than the usual intro with the... Uh, the music and me telling you to go to the website and 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 you know subscribe to the magazine. I'm doing it a little bit differently this time. Um, and Tessa, uh, I keep on going on about her, but she mentioned this word. It's the first ever word in Romanian I'm going to speak. It's called jocuș. I hope I've pronounced that right. Um, and I and I checked with my mother-in-law who is. Uh, Iranian and she gave me the the Farsi the Farsi word for that and and that is Shaytun. Now those words mean a little bit more playfulness. So this is me being playful. This is it. This is me. Anyway, uh, so she recommended a podcast to listen to as well, uh, which I have been doing, and that's it's really good. It's um, by a guy called Andrew Gold. It's called On the Edge, and he goes and he doesn't go anywhere actually he he stays at home i assume or wherever he is and he interviews these really interesting guests so that he's introduced interviewed these philosophers um there's a brilliant philosophy one with julian Bagini. um that's really interesting he's also spoken to some astronomers and a crime boss and a pedophile so it's not history, uh, obviously, but it's re- there's some really interesting stuff. So anyway, uh, this, that's just a podcast recommendation. So I thought that would help. And at the moment, uh, uh, Aspects of History HQ, we've just been running our Books of the Year. So that's Books of the Year for 2021. 20, uh, Go to our website and you'll see all our authors. And they've got some big names. Tessa's there. Oh, God, she gets another name check. And then there is also... We've had a number of our guests on on the podcast have put their choices there. So Roger Morehouse has put his in. Uh, Anne O'Brien, who was last week, she's in there as well. And we've also got Andrew Roberts, Simon Seabag, Montefiore, and some contributors to our magazine have have put some book recommendations in there as well. So uh, head over there because it's Christmas or it's near to Christmas, so you can have all your book choices for your family and friends. Now today I'm talking to Peter Hughes who has just written a book called A History of Love and Hate in 21 Statues. Now this is a it's not your average history book because and I haven't finished it yet but I've been um I've been reading through it and it's it is it is absolutely brilliant. Um but he's taking a look at this whole history debate, and, I, and to tell you the truth, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in it, but um, I, I do, I do get a little bit depressed with the lack of debate. And he takes uh, an approach which 
perhaps will go some way uh, in healing wounds and bringing people together and that's why i i find i find the book so enjoyable but also so enlightening and he's also a philosopher a psychologist and so with that in mind one has to at least i was a little bit um well before i was going to interview him i was thinking you know gosh he's a philosopher and psychologist and you know um he must have a brain the size of britain so i had to be on my toes but he's a lovely guy and we had a great chat so i really do hope you enjoy it um if you have got any comments or suggestions you can get hold of me uh on the twitter at at wcq that's o-l-l-i-e-w-c-q you can get hold of aspects of history on our twitter account that's at aspects history and then you can also email us uh, at history at aspects of anyway on with the show peter hughes welcome to the aspects of history podcast thank you oliver pleasure to be here um so peter and i i um i i wanted to introduce you but and I know um, you'll probably do a better job of introducing yourself, but as I understand, you know, you're, you're, uh, uh, this is, we're here to talk about a history of, uh, a history of love and hate in 21 statues. Uh, but I think it's probably fair to say this is your first kind of um, branching it. You're a philosopher and psychologist, aren't you? So right, yeah. should I, can I get you to, what, what, do you want to sort of uh, give your a quick breakdown of exactly who you are? And then, because this is your yeah, first absolutely. sort of venture into history, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a philosopher. I have a PhD in philosophy, but I'm also a member of the British Psychological Society, which is the Association for uh, Professional Psychologists. Um, I've spent uh, a, a good deal of my life um, working in in extreme situations with people in extreme situations, and one of the the uh, things that always interested me is the psychology of conflict. You know how conflict is generated, how we resolve it, and really that's what my book is about. And and it's of course it goes through three and a half thousand years of history from ancient Egypt to the present day, but crucially it's really about how we become divided. Um, how we demonize the other, how we uh, turn a lack of empathy for the other person into violence and perhaps ultimately into terror. And really, that's what the book is about. It's really about the present and the future as we become increasingly divided and uh, increasingly intolerant towards each other. Uh, the book is really asking the question, the underlying philosophical and psychological themes throughout the book is how does this happen and and can we do anything to stop it yeah it, i i mean i started reading it i'm getting i'm going through it and and i i've got to say i was uh, before talking to you i was a little bit nervous because you're a philosopher and that immediately um uh, uh, uh it gives me a little bit of intellectual inferiority i think um so so you're gonna have to be a bit gentle with me um but uh i'm I, the, 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 I've also come from a background which has not really been exposed to any of this kind of conflict, particularly, you know, like on social media and the statues thing as well. So I am a little bit innocent going into it. And, I, and 
I, I've found it qu like quite a depressing world in that, you know, there is so much conflict. No one's willing to compromise, really. Um, I, I think that's right. I think what we're seeing now is is uh, both on the right and on the on the left or what used to be the political right and the political left. What we're seeing is a a, a really growing intolerance. And and that's fed by a multitude of, of, of factors and not least of which the the uh, the way in which we can now uh, communicate and foster intolerance on on social media but but I think the the key thing about it it's only really feeding into our our nature you know our, our nature as human beings if it's you know, we are natural uh, tribalists you know you can take 20 kids and any psychologist will tell you you have a unified bunch of kids you give one a blue shirt and one a, a red shirt and, and suddenly they're divided into two teams and each one wants to defeat the other it's it's as it's as easy for us to do that as it is for us to breathe and 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 really that's what the current debates and 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 divides uh, between us uh, political divides cultural divides uh, opinions about whether statues should stand or fall opinions about whether linguistic changes should be institutionalized say in universities whether people should be no platformed all these kind of issues um, all really stem from from this innate uh, hardwired tribalism really that defines us as a species. Uh, Jeffrey Miller, he was a, uh, uh, an evolutionary psychologist and he put it rather beautifully. He said, we're not fallen angels. He said, we're risen apes. And, uh, and that's really a wonderful way to, to express and to define who and what we are. And we should be mindful when we see ourselves going down a certain path. History really, and writing this book, you're quite correct, I've gone through 20 uh, 21 statues across three and a half thousand years and and each one of them was an act of destruction it was an act of violent destruction and that's why i chose them for that reason and and um and even writing the book uh, descending into this history a history of horror and uh, and it's a, a history of of contagion and how that that uh, that contagion and that that demonization of the other can turn us into ordinary people into doing extraordinarily uh, brutal and horrific things. So if I can give just one example, I talk about the destruction of the statue of Felix Mendelssohn, which was outside the Leipzig Gewandhaus. This happened in 1936, as it happens at the time when the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra was, was touring Berlin and, and the head of the orchestra, the conductor, Sir Thomas Beecham, had asked to, to visit the statue. And, and, uh, and uh, he went to see the statue one morning and it was taken off its plinth, uh, apparently smashed and and destroyed or, or melted down. And because anti-Semitism at that time was the Weimar Republic had gone, we, we have the National Socialists in power, anti-Semitism is virulent, we're only a short distance away from Kristallnacht and the, the start of the Second World War and, uh, and the systematic attempt to exterminate the Jews. And, and, uh, and the interesting thing about the, the destruction of the, the statue of Mendelssohn really is that it links to um, a really interesting uh, sort of subplot, really, which is uh, Richard Wagner's horrendous piece of uh, horrendous essay, which he initially published anonymously, um, called Judaism in Music. And he subsequently republished it under his own name, where he really castigates uh, he, the Jews, blocks them into an identity group and castigates most particular venom for Mendelssohn himself decrying his lack of creativity, his, his impoverished intellect. You, you know, he, he, he really demonised him. And, and of course, there was also a personal element of this, because when Wagner was a struggling composer, he'd sent 
a piece of his music to Mendelssohn for evaluation because Mendelssohn was the giant at the time and, and, and Wagner was a mere minnow and, uh, and Mendelssohn didn't even bother um, to reply. And, and, and of course, that what you see then with Wagner, of course, is the psychology of resentment, that here is a man, and worse than that, not just a man, but a Jew who, who dared to have the effrontery, not even to reply or give his evaluation of my, um, of my work. And, and that's really how intolerance begins. So the point I was coming to really was how easy it is to take ordinary people to do extraordinarily brutal things. There's a wonderful book by Christopher Browning, which I discuss in this chapter called um, Battalion 101, which was ordinary Germans who were sent to, too old to be in the army, but they were sent to Poland, well, police officers and, and just ordinary Germans, and, and how they descended into not just, you know, brutality, but the most egregious forms of cruelty. They were taking, beginning with like taking uh, Jews out of their villages, taking them into the nearby forest, systematically executing them one after another, and they were so inept to begin with at committing these atrocities that their uniforms, their faces, their hands would get covered with blood and brains as they put bullets in the in the heads of the, the, the defenseless Jews, and 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 how easy it is to turn us from ordinary people into violent, murderous um, um, uh, executioners. And uh, and really, that's that's in some way what my what my book is 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 about. And how do we avoid this? And and more importantly, really, can we not see? Are we really that naive that we look at what's happening around us now, and we cannot see that that is the path we are on, where statements are being made and they're being made with a caveat: no debate. I, I think the discussion I, I, is over. But I find that rather a depressing state of affairs, obviously, but also I'm a bit worried, and I'm sure a lot of us are, that there's no way through. Um, you know, the, the, both sides are so polarised now. Um, you know, for a, a great example is in the US, where, you know, both sides are diametrically opposed. Any compromise you've seen in, in Congress, I think, recently, um, any attempt to... Uh, I think US Republicans have, a few US Republicans voted to spend money in their states that would improve infrastructure and they're immediately castigated by their side. So there's, you know, even a hint of compromises. And that's just an example. I'm sure there's the same on other, other sides as well, but I, I don't know where, where do we go from here? Well, again, let's look at the destruction of another statue. Apart from reading your book, I'd say. Uh, first yeah, read my book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, there's, uh, uh, there's the talk about another statue, which is the destruction of the statue of Confucius in Khufu in China, which took place in 1966, which, of course, was the, the era of the where the Cultural Revolution yeah. began. And of course, the Cultural Revolution, where did it begin? It began in schools. It began in colleges. It began in universities and it began at the most elite universities. And uh, and, for example, one of the first people to be killed was was killed at a, a girls' school. You know, the vice president, I think, of a girls' school, a, a very elite girls' school in Beijing, was was clubbed to death with a nailed spike and body thrown in a garbage can. And 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 there's a wonderful memoir, which I discuss in the book by a woman called Ray Yang, and it's called Spider Eaters. And she was at one of these elite schools at the dawn of the Cultural Revolution. And 
and she eventually emigrated to America and 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 really fell in love with the values of pluralism and liberalism and uh, which of course uh, Western democracies embody. But but at the time she was a young girl and and felt that her status as part of the elite was being denigrated by her teachers. When the Cultural Revolution came, in her own words, she says, "I found my revenge." And and of course we're all familiar with the the struggle sessions and and the uh, and the parading of. Of, of people whose thought was not ideologically pure through the streets with placards around their necks detailing their crimes. But this particular incident in Khufu in 1966 is when Red Guards, which were mainly young people, students, um, and their associates went into the, uh, the Confucius, what they call the Kong family home, which was where uh, the Confucius family really lived and all Confucius ancestors, descendants, they all were buried there. And they systematically began destroying statues, tearing the place apart. They desecrated graves. They, they, they dug dead bodies out of the graves and hung them from a tree. One of the observers said the stench was, was overwhelming and made them vomit. Um, they plundered the graves for their jewelry and their, and the riches that were, were buried in the graves. But for the statue of Confucius, they, they actually arranged a very particular fate they they took it off its of its pedestal they they put a dunce's cap on his head they dragged him through the streets and uh and followed and they made the followers of confucius follow behind the statue they humiliated them and 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 beat them as they walked and eventually they cast the statue of confucius onto the flames and 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 interestingly in in uh, Last year, the, uh, the uh, Citizens Alliance for Chinese Americans in Greater New York released a statement, an, an open letter. And they were saying, you know, some of these, some of the more elderly members of that particular group were there during the Cultural Revolution. They fled China to get away from Maoism and, uh, and the Cultural Revolution. And they made the point, you know, our children are now going to school and they are being divided into oppressors and oppressed the righteous, the virtuous, and, and, and the malevolent, the good and the evil. And, 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 and they said, we have to toll the, the warning bell that we have been here before. And, uh, and we've seen this happen in China and we don't want to see it happening in the United States. So, so they are warning about that. And of course, the principal group that suffers from all the ideological the demand for ideological purity at the moment, particularly on the liberal left in the United States, are of course Asian Americans, who, who are by far and away the most successful identity group, if you want, in terms of educational attainment and cultural attainment in the United States, and um, and they are the ones that are are really being are, are really suffering really from from this new kind of social justice type ideology, which is. Which is which is flowing through the the universities, schools, colleges, and also into corporate America. So I, I, th I think that that the, the 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 what they're saying is, and and I would agree with this. Really, is we we know where we're going. We know from history. History can teach us this, and psychology can teach us this. Psycholo psychologists can can tell us exactly the 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 road that we're on and the type of mindset you have to be in to divide people into 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 these type of identity groups and to demonize our ad group and valorize our in-group and of course biologists and anthropologists can tell us the same as well i was uh, there was a, a chap called christopher baum he was uh, an uh, 
uh, an anthropologist, and he wrote a, an extraordinary book called Hierarchy in the Forest. And he focused principally on foragers, human foragers, nomadic societies. He also focused on chimpanzees and, and looking at how we, how the connection there is between our behavior, both to our nearest um, evolutionary relatives, but also to think, who are we as human beings? And what he found was universal, even among nomadic societies and, uh, and human foragers was ethnocentrism was, was universal. In other words, you know, each individual band tend to think, well, we are the people. We are, we are the best, you know. Um, raiding, particularly for, for women uh, and, and for, for, for valuables, again, is, is universal. War and conflict is universal. And, and above all, dominance hierarchies are universal. We're not an egalitarian species. And, and he said the reason that communist or Marxist ideologies lead to tyranny and terror is because they're not based, he says, on an accurate blueprint of what human nature is. And, uh, and, and he said our, that the great success and the highly improbable success of liberal democracies, because of course democracies can be illiberal. I mean, democracies can vote for tyranny. Um, but the, 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 great, the great triumph really of liberal democracies and the improbable triumph of liberal democracies is to create reverse dominance hierarchies where, where really that tyranny is held at bay by the will of the people. And, and, and that's an extraordinary triumph, but it's a very fragile one and one that we can see uh, falling apart and breaking apart uh, as, as, as we watch, you know, and, and I think in my more pessimistic moments, I think the situation is irretrievable, but there is hope. Um, if I can give a brief anecdote here about Nelson Mandela. Yeah, yeah. I hope it, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the hope because <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. really depressing. Well, well, well <laughs> Let's look at a couple of things that Mandela did, really. He, mm, um, yeah. There's obviously a huge campaign, um, uh, the Roads Must Fall campaign, for instance, which then extended into demands to take down the, the statue of Cecil Rhodes from Oriel College in, in, in Oxford. And yet um, Mandela put his name to 10 scholarships uh, called the Mandela Rhodes Scholarships. And, and he believed rather than to demonise Rhodes, he was fully aware of who Rhodes was and what the history was, but he felt we need to close the circle, was the phrase he used. We need to close this circle of vengeance and, and, and hate. And, and his solution for that really was, um, was to have these scholarships. And, and actually when he came to power in South Africa, uh, there was the big question of what you do with all the statues. What happens to these statues of, of white supremacists, racists, and, and whereas some of the most egregious ones were, were taken down, he made the point um, that uh, there are some people who are heroes to us, who are villains to other people. And there are some people who are villains to us, who are heroes to them. And we, we have to find, he said, we have to find a common ground. Unless we find that common ground and learn a way to manage our differences and come together, he said, then we are finished. And one legislator made the point that you don't heal old wounds by making new ones. And uh, so I think where we can find hope is by going back and returning really to, to finding what it is that as people we, we have in common. And really that is perhaps ultimately takes us to one of the fundamental psychological and philosophical issues we have to deal with, which is the problem of suffering. And, and when we become divided, illiberal, intolerant, when we allow grievance to create you know, hierarchies of virtue and value. What happens is we become, 
pretty immune to the suffering of other people. That we become intensely aware of the suffering of our in-group, but those on our out-group, you know, we, 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 we treat them with contempt. Going back to Battalion 101 as, a, uh, as this uh, program of really um, um, violence against the Jews was, was beginning. One of the Jews went to see a, one of the German generals and, 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 and you know, um, asked for, you know, asked for mercy, asked for this to stop. And the general simply urinated on it, literally urinated on him. And, uh, and that is what happens when you get on a cycle of exclusion. Exclusion then turns to contempt and contempt turns to violence and terror. And, and that's, the, that's the loop, really, that we, uh, that we need to get out of. And, and, uh, and the way to get out of that is to see individuals as individuals primarily and not as member of an identity group. Because when you divide people into identity groups, in a very important sense, you dehumanize them. That's not to say we don't have to deal with issues, say, of discrimination or whatever, which can affect people collectively, of course. But we are now living in the West in 2021. We're not living in 1921, 1821, 1721 or 1621. I don't think there has ever been societies on the face of the earth, well, I haven't been, which validate and value diversity as much as our own. Does that mean the project is, is perfect? Of course it's not. Does that mean that there's not discrimination, racism, intolerance? Of course there is. And, and there always will be. What all we can do is to find uh, the crucially, what is it that unites us as people? And that is the problem of suffering. So um, in my discussion of the destruction of the statue of Mendelssohn, I talk about uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner. I don't know if you remember, he wrote a famous book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And, and he was asked the question, his son uh, was born with progeria, which is simply a genetic disorder, which means that he grows old before his time. And typically people with progeria die in their teenage years, as did Kushner's son. And he had to ask the question, really, what the hell was God doing? You know, as, as a rabbi, he's saying, where was God when all this was happening? You know, where is the justice, the fairness in this? And, and he concluded really through an analysis of the book of Job, uh, which is for me, uh, the most one of the most remarkable books in the in the Bible, you know, and which obviously is where where God tests the faith and 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 fidelity of Job at the devil's instigation, and and um, and, uh, and and I think Kushner Kushner comes to the conclusion that uh, he says we're all brothers and sisters in suffering, and and he concludes really that maybe God, in his view, God created the world but then abandoned it because you know he he's not in control of this. We are. And so we can't hold him accountable for these vagaries of nature. And, um, and, uh, and again, to give a, another example I talk about in the book, which is the trial of Oscar Wilde. Mm. Now, Oscar Wilde was, in 1895, was, uh, was um, condemned uh, at, the, at the instigation of the Marquis of Queensbury. He was the father of Bosey, of course, with whom yeah. um, Wilde was in a relationship with. And, and, uh, and uh, he left a note for Wilde in a in a hotel, saying to Oscar Wilde, posing as a as a sodomite, and and Wilde chose to take action against him, and of course lost, and he ended up in eventually in Reading Jail, doing two years hard labour. And there's a wonderful anecdote, which is really narrated by the French writer André Gide, and um, and he says one day there was Wilde was in solitary confinement, twenty three hours a day, and mm. and one uh, for one hour a day, uh, Wilde was and the prisoners were allowed to walk around. 
the, um, the, the courtyard, but they had to walk in silence. Um, but as they were walking one day, one of the prisoners whispers to Wilde, he said, sir, he said, um, this must be so much difficult, so much harder for you. You must suffer so much more than us. We are working class men. You know, we expect to be here. This is our destiny. But you, it must be so much harder for you to have fallen from where you've fallen from and end up here. And Wilde, uh, with characteristic, really, humility and wisdom in a way, said to, said to the man, no, he said, uh, we all suffer alike. And, and, and there's some real wisdom in that. And, and that really is the fundamental question, really, that we're grappling with now. And, and that as historians, philosophers and psychologists, we grapple with throughout history, which is, do we all suffer alike? And, and, and those who uh, divide us into identity groups and, 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 and demonize those in the out groups say, no, we don't all suffer alike. So, 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 sorry to interrupt you, but just going back to something you said, we're, we're, we're in 2021 now, obviously, yeah. but yeah. Um, we've just come uh, off the back of a summer in 2020 where, you know, we had a lot of protests. But one particular thing that struck me, I think it was last summer in 2020. It could have been. I don't think it was this summer, but it was but it was um, I think it was in Central Park um, where you had um, a, a uh, basically there was segregation I think there were young people uh, of all colors holding a sort of tape and you could only pass into the sort of safe zone which was for people of color yeah. if you were obviously if you were of color um, which is you know segregation and I saw that and that made me feel very uncomfortable um, but that's we're in 2021 now and as you say, we are we seem to be at the, the height of, 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 of our achievements in diversity. But my feeling was that maybe we've regressed somewhat and we're no longer. We, maybe the peak was, I don't know, um, a few years before where we've got now. Now we're beginning to, 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 um, to regress. Is, is there something? It's that? interesting. But, but it, and this is really where a, a, a diversity into psychology really becomes useful because um, there was a paper published, I think it was last year, by Daniel Gilbert, who's a Harvard psychologist, on, on, on something he called prevalence-induced concept change. And, and, and the basic, um, to cut a, a long story short, the basic thing he concludes is that the more the prevalence of a thing decreases, the more we expand the concept of it so it looks as if there's no difference. So, for instance, he showed some participants some some faces and he asked participants to divide them into threatening and non-threatening faces, which they did. He then removed some of the faces they deemed as threatening and then showed the pictures again. But the distribution, the answers were pretty much the same split all over again. So what they'd done is they'd expanded the concept of threat to encompass faces they'd previously seen as non-threatening. So if you apply that psychology to, say, discrimination, yeah, well, when you have egregious forms of discrimination, what most of us would understand as racism, which is, which is to denigrate somebody because of the color of their skin, to essentialize their identity and to denigrate them because of that identity and to discriminate against them because of that identity. And of course, there's a whole history of that. I mean, in the United States, from the, well, the antebellum South through to after Reconstruction into the Jim Crow era, um, you know, but, but in effect, what we're seeing now is the most tolerant society we've ever had but what's happened is we've expanded the concept of discrimination to such a point that it looks as if not only have we made no difference but to use the, the phrase used by one of the the uh, um, leaders really in this kind this this wing of 
anti-racism in the United States, Ibram X. Kendi, he says, we're, we're in a, a stage four metastatic cancer, he compares racism in the United States to, which of course is absurd given the progress that's been made you know, across the last two, three hundred years in the United States. I mean, we tear down the the statue of George Washington because he was a slave owner. We, the, to- the statue of um, um, Thomas Jefferson, I think, has just been removed from, recently, think, yeah. from New York. And why? Because they were they were slave owners. But you wouldn't today have a president of the United States who is a slave owner. And the reason you don't have a president today who is not a slave owner is is in large part because of the ideas and the values that Washington, people like Washington and people like Jefferson passed down to us, despite their imperfections. And of course, we can condemn them for 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 holding for holding slaves. But they lived in the in the in the 18th and 19th centuries, you know, there were this is a, a, a where what was deemed, uh, you know, acceptable or normal is is not what we're deemed acceptable or normal now. And both Jefferson and Washington very overtly struggled with the fact that, that they owned slaves, and and, uh, and it was Washington undoubtedly said that that he wanted to uh, he wanted to end the practice, and and so so what we can do is we can look at historical figures. And yes, we can say, well, that really wasn't a good way to treat a human being, which it's not. Of course it's not. But we look at the flip side of that and think, well, what ideas did they bring? What values, virtues, ideas did they bring into the world and propagate that allows us to be where we are now? And, and that we are where we are is in large part because of people like that and, uh, and whose values really ultimately not only allowed us to progress to where we are now, but allowed us to look back and condemn them for slaveholding. I mean, a good example, really, of the complexity of this is what happened in the University of Edinburgh with the uh, what was then known as the Hume Tower, the David Hume Tower. I don't know if you remember this. And, and there was a petition run by an American, I think a Norwegian-American woman who, who, who was white, who, who, who said, look, you know, this is very distressing for people of color to walk past this every day and feel they have to walk past a tower or walk into a tower named after David Hume, who, who despite the fact that he, of course, was was instrumental again in in many of the values and virtues that allowed us to reach the point we have now we we um he made injudicious comments and 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 that suggested he was in support of slavery and um so they suggested renaming the tower and they they said one of the names she put forward was let's call it uh, the Julius Nyerere tower who of course was the Maoist dictator of Tanzania, who, 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 who was also a student at Edinburgh University. But then, of course, she realized, somebody pointed out to her, well, actually, he made homophobic. He was homophobic. Well, of course he was. He was an yeah. African leader of his time. So, no, he wasn't good enough either. And also, of course, he was responsible for the forced migration of millions of his fellow black Africans and, and, and which, which caused the decimation of the economy. So you can, there, there is, it's only when we have the humility to look at each other and to look through history. It's a bit like Martin Luther King said, there is some of the best in the worst for us and some of the worst in the best of us. And our hope is that when we see people doing something that we dislike, we see ourselves doing that. We have that impulse too, we're no different. Yeah, absolutely, I think that's what um, I was struck by reading. I think it might've been the chapter um, on, uh, Frederick Douglass, which yeah. uh, I, uh, which I didn't know that his his statue had t- been taken down, and we still don't know who who did that. Um, but what 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 I what struck me was that 
a lot of these statues were put up by the Victorians or, or in the Victorian yeah. era, who at the time they themselves thought they had reached peak humanity, obviously, they, yeah. you know, that was a big thing. But I think a lot of the people who are pulling those statues down think they've reached peak, um, the peak. Yeah. They understand clearly and the Victorians don't. And there's no sort of um, uh, uh, analysis of their own. Um, there's no nuance, you know, we, yeah. we, we, we put malevolence onto the other and, and, and that really is a key theme of the book. You know, hist historically, when have we done this in, in relation to these 21 statues I, I discuss, uh, but also in terms of our own personal psychology? You know, it is a wonderful, beautiful feeling. I, I think uh, we look at uh, the church father, Tertullian, and we, we remember his famous balcony that he imagined heaven, like all the righteous in heaven, walking out onto a, into a vast, enormous celestial balcony yeah. and looking down into the depths of hell where the sinners, the pious, the great and the good were burning eternally in the flames. And they looked down with satisfaction. They looked down with a, with a glowing sense of self-righteousness, which isn't it wonderful to be right? Isn't yeah. it wonderful to be good? And, and, and one of the things that, 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 that Frederick Douglass said, really, he says, I have no heart, he said, um, to visit upon children the sins of their fathers. I have no heart to visit upon children the sins of their fathers. And of course, he was born in 1818. He escaped from slavery in 1838, and he became a great orator, a great abolitionist. He ran for president. He became the first black U.S. marshal. I mean, and, and he emphasized over and over and over again that, and it most famously, really, in his, uh, in his brilliant um, a piece on the... Uh, uh, what to a slave is the uh, is the Fourth of July, where recastigates you know the Fourth of July and says this is not for black people, this is for you know white supremacists. This is this is nothing in it for us. It's simply a glorification of, of our oppression. But then he ends by saying, but he says, the values, the values that this day represent, they can serve us too. And history has proved him correct. And what's fascinating is nobody knows who destroyed the statue of Frederick Douglass. It could have been you know, white supremacists, it could have been racist, angry at the destruction of Confederate monuments, or it could have been people on the anti-racist left who were angry at, at, uh, at Frederick Douglass for his, his validation, really, of the, the, the American Constitution and, 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 and the values of liberty, free speech, merit, all the things which are now castigated as symbols of, of, of white supremacy. And of course, there's a further twist, really, to the story of Frederick Douglass in the sense that when his former master, Thomas Auld, uh, who was who he described as the worst of the masters who had ever, ever, ever owned him and, and mistreated him horrendously. When Auld was dying, he asked to see Frederick Douglass. At this time, of course, Frederick Douglass was, was not only a, a free man, but a highly celebrated man. And, and he went, he said, yes, I'll go and see uh, uh, Auld. And it's not just, Douglass didn't do this just out of some love or fellow feeling for Douglas, although he talks about the fellow feeling, and, he, and but, he, but what he really wanted to do, he says, look, this is who I am now. I am free, I am strong, I am powerful. And he walked in through the front door and he sat with Thomas Auld, who was really on his deathbed and, um, and, and gave him what comfort as he was able to. Um, but also in so doing, he also made it clear that he was really a free man, he would stay a free man, and there was no place for slavery in the United States. So, so you have here a man like all of us who was complex. At various times, he suggested, you know, well, maybe we need to go down the route of violent insurrection. Then he would pull back from that and say, no, let's, let's believe in more peaceful means. So, so like all of us, he wrestled with these issues. 
But the trajectory he was on, he could see the potential, as did somebody like Ida B. Wells, for example, who, who, who was a journalist writing at the you know, end of 19th into the 20th century. And, and, um, and I discuss her as well in, in the, I think in the chapter on the destruction of Confederate monuments. And they, they believed really that the values that, that the United States embodied would ultimately lead uh, if they were cherished into a, into a pluralistic um, and, uh, and, and fair and democratic society. And interestingly, Martin Luther King's last speech the night before he was assassinated, um, he actually said, he said, if I was in the Soviet Union, he said, if I was in China, then fair enough, I would not expect equality. I would not expect to be treated the same. Those are tyrannical societies, but I'm not, he said. I'm in the United States of America, and you tell me that we are all born equal, we're all born free, we all have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then give me and my people that right. Yeah. And, and of course, that's correct. And that's, of course, is, 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 uh, is, is what has happened, you know. Now, uh, and one thing I want uh, that, that I, I was interested by um, in reading, because uh, the Colston one is the big one in this in this country, uh, and actually I, I think that w w w uh, reverberated all around the world. Um, but but the Colston statue is interesting because I read a, a long article about uh, the sort of really uh, agonising process that, and and you you write about it in your chapter. Um, the, the process of, of the Colston statue, there were attempts to bring it down, uh, you know, um, yeah. legally, um, and it, it, it yeah. was a, yeah, it was a painful process. But yeah. so I, and I think I got the sense from your chapter is that, you know, that, that that's the right way to go about it. If you want to bring it down, that's, that's the right way to bring it. Obviously, none, none of us, um, well, I would say the majority of people don't like seeing mobs bringing down statues. But uh, I, I would have thought, but um, but the problem with the Colston one was that it did go through this this process where certain groups and communities had their say, but nothing ever actually happened. So uh, I mean, even a, a plaque beneath um, the statue explaining that Colston was a was a slaver or um, or traded in slaves was not was was not even that that didn't even get. Um, uh, put onto the statue and so I, I I've got sympathy for people who uh, who felt they had were left with no choice but to put it down themselves um but I'm I'm then conscious that I'm you know veering into mob territory there um, which also makes me uncomfortable yeah it's a really interesting dilemma because you're quite correct you know I mean there'd been numerous attacks on the statue of Edward Colston you know and there'd been for instance there was one which which, which I thought was, uh, was was a fabulous way of doing it, was they, they'd done a mock-up, I think, out of stones of a, of a slave ship. Yes. Yeah. And then they linked that to, to modern slavery, people who today are trafficked and, uh, and, 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 uh, and kept in a state of, of servitude. Mm. And of course, you know, the, 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 um, I think that the, the, the conflict there is really brilliantly um, brought out in a documentary, which was made by the executive producer was David Olasoga, who wrote a wonderful book called um, Black and British, which yeah, I it's recommend. It's an absolutely fabulous book. And, um, and, he, and, and he made a, a documentary on the destruction of the, the statue of Edward Colston. And there's a, there's a remarkable moment in that, in that um, um, documentary where where um, he talks about a, a chap, I think his name was Richard Horlock, I believe, 
who was uh, a white guy, who white working class guy, who uh, born and bred in, in Bristol, who after the statue was taken down, he jumped on the plinth, you know, wrapped himself in the Union Jack and, uh, and you know, uh, started chanting, uh, presumably, um, um, pro pro British and 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 uh, chance and and shouting against the the tearing down of the statue. He of course got nothing like the coverage that say Jen Reed did, who was the the activist who the black woman who who stood up with her fist on the plinth um, and then was made into a resin statue that was then itself taken down by the council two days later. But but what's interesting in this documentary, which I, I really recommend to everybody, that that. Uh, um, they talk to Richard, they track this Richard Horlock guy down and, uh, and, and he takes them to the estate where he grew up. And he says, look, he said, uh, this is where my friend was killed. And this is where this terrible thing happened. And this is where this terrible thing happened. And I was born in poverty. I was abused as a kid. And, 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 he, and, he, and he makes the point, really, that, that it's, it's, you know, the real division here isn't between black and white. He says the division is between rich and poor. That, that he would see himself as having much more in common, you know, with poor working class black people than, than he would, or indeed that he believed that they should with kind of either white or black, middle, middle class, university educated, you know, members of, of, of society. And I think it's, uh, and, uh, and at one point in a the documentary, they, they uh, well, at several points, they interview the, the wonderful mayor of Bristol, Marvin Rees, who was, was a, one of UK's first black mayors, and um, and uh, and he's facing a protest on the lawn outside his uh, his offices. Um, largely, he says, and he is so what he says. I've got middle class progressives. He said on the lawn outside my office, telling me to apologise for slavery. He says, you know, what's all that about? He said it's more complicated than that. And 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 that's really the issue that we face. It's that level of complexity. So you know, and 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 this is the same thing that Mandela faced when he he, you know, inherited you know a, a, an army of, of of statues after after you know the fall of apartheid in South Africa. And the question is, is not what do we do with the past, but it's like Marvin Rees said, he was no lover of Colston. He didn't think this, the statue of Colson was something you know, worthy of veneration. Of course not. But what he said is, I've got to keep my city together. And, and if we look at the problem from that perspective, right. which is how do we hold ourselves together? Because we are falling apart. You know, we can see it particularly among our universities, in our colleges, in our schools, in our, in our institutions, in our museums. You know, we're, we're finding our divisions being amplified. And there's an anecdote about uh, going back to the statue of, of Felix Mendelssohn, where he was had a bust of Mendelssohn in the British Library. And and the the woman who describes herself as an activist um, 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 librarian um, decided that 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 really would be a good idea if that bust was removed because, quote, Mendelssohn represents Western civilizational supremacy. And, and we look at that and we think, do we know nothing about anti-Semitism? Yeah, that, that, that makes no sense to me. I mean, but, but, this is, but this is where this goes, you see, because the question always is, we can look at statues and somebody once proposed, here's a way of doing it. He said, let's take down those statues like Confederate monuments, for instance, 
that were put up as symbols of racism. The intention was to glorify white supremacy. And, and in New Orleans, for example, various Confederate monuments have been taken down by uh, the instigation of the mayor, Mitch, Mitch Landrew, because he correctly says, really, that these are these monuments are symbols of white supremacy. They have no place in a diverse, multicultural um, 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 society. But, you know, but a, a black uh, author and journalist, Sophia Nelson says, he says, I don't, I don't fear, she said, 150 year old statues of, of, of old dead white men. What I fear is the hatred we feel in 2017. And, and, and that's the question, how do we manage this? Of course, in an ideal society, we would all agree that the correct thing to do is this particular course of action. And we'd all happily uh, go down that route and we'd all shake hands at the end of it and move on. That's not where we are. Mm -hmm. And we are facing polarization, which is dangerous. It's fragmenting us as a society. How do we deal with that? And it has to come down to redignifying the individual. And I'll give you an example of this, uh, which I mentioned in the book of a man called Daryl Davis, who's an African, who's a black um, American musician. Um, but he is really uh, more famous for persuading more than 200 members of the Ku Klux Klan to renounce their racism and give him their robes. He's got a lockup near where he lives, which has got more than 200 robes of Klan members who resigned from the Klan at his instigation. They saw through their relationship with him that actually this is no way to be. There's no, the white supremacy is malevolent. Racism is malevolent. We have to renounce this. And, and how he did it was really interesting because he talks about when he was, I think the son of either a diplomat or, or, um, or I think uh, one of the first black Americans to, to rise high up, I think in, in the FBI, I believe, but, but he certainly didn't come from an impoverished background. And, and until I think he's, maybe he was 10, 11, 12, he, he didn't really experience racism, but when he did, he was shocked by it. And he asked himself, he asked the question really in his own head, how can you hate me when you don't know who I am? And all he did was he applied that logic to people he could easily have hated, members of the clan who wanted to kill him, yeah. who saw him as an inferior human being. And he said, how can I hate you when I don't know who you are? And, and he describes two extraordinary incidents um, among many, but one was when um, one point when uh, the Klan members couldn't get a bus to one of their marches because, you know, people knew the Klan were, they didn't want to be seen to supporting them. He lent them his tour bus because he's a musician to take the Klan members and drove them. He as a black man drove white supremacists to a white supremacist rally. <laughs> and, uh, and then there's another uh, even more incredible incident, really, where because he knew the Klan so well and and, and like any organization, any society has dominance hierarchies. Everybody wants to climb up the hierarchy. And one guy who he describes as, as lazy and not particularly bright wanted to become, go higher up in the, the, the clan hierarchy. And to that, yeah. to do that, he had to pass an exam. But this guy didn't want to study. So he phoned up Daryl Davis and said, Daryl, for this exam, can you tell me what they're likely to ask me and what the answers are? So Daryl Davis told him, and of course he passed. Um, but what he's doing, of course, in the process of doing this, he's forcing these people to think, how can I hate this man because he's black? I'm now seeing him as a fully rounded individual human being, just like me. He yeah. suffers like I do. He bleeds like I do. He loves like I do. He hates like I do. He's like me. 
and you cannot hate yourself. And when you see yourself in the other, when you see the other in yourself, you cannot be cruel. You cannot be inhumane. You cannot lack compassion because really what you're then saying is I hate myself. And that is the way to build bridges. And, and, and of course, it's, there's another case I talk in when I talk about the destruction of the, the statue of Ambekdar, the great Dalit leader in, in yeah. Bidaranyam in India. And I talk about that statue and there's a moment at the, uh, in what I talk about Isabel Wilkerson, who's a yes, great- I was gonna, I was just thinking the plumbing incident. The plumbing incident is, is incredible. Yeah. And, and this guy turns up, this white guy, who we can assume from, uh, from, um, from how she describes the interaction, that he had little sympathy for people of color. And yeah. he turns up to repair a leak at her house. And of course, he resents her for having a, a wealth, perhaps, and a status and a house, which is better than his. And, 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 and it, they, they don't know where the leak's coming from, and they have to move stuff out of the way to get to it. He refuses to do it. So she ends up doing it. Okay, so he obviously resents her. He clearly sees resents her because of the color of her skin, and uh, so she then um, um, just does what she says. I decided to throw him a, a hail mary, and uh, and she says that I think her mother had died uh, recently, and and she asks him, "Well, you got a mum?" And she says, "Yeah, well, she died too." And suddenly they start talking about this, yeah. and they form a really good bond, and 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 from um, um, you know, and he describes his father was was a bit of a brute and and, and a bit abusive towards him, but he loved his mum. But his mum's no longer there, and she talks about her mum. And suddenly, you've got two human beings who realise that they they share much more than it divides them, and their divisions were really literally only skin deep. And and actually, we have two human beings here who are now communicating. And now he's helping her move, and he solves the leak, and he goes beyond the call of duty to help her. On the way out, he sees a photograph which has been damaged by the water lying on the floor and it's a picture of I think Isabel Wilkinson's mum and he hands it to her and says there's memories there he says and they part as friends now when they go back out into the world who knows he may have gone back to what he was before he may have been subject to the same influences but somewhere that kind of contact will stay with him and 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 there is no human being there is no human being with whom we cannot find common ground but equally there is no human being against whom we would not commit acts of violence and terror if we went down that path. We are capable of both what Stephen Pinker calls the, the better angels of our nature. You know, we we um, we we are we are capable of letting those angels guide us, but we're equally capable of casting them aside and, and let the worst demons of our nature drive us. And that's in each one of us. None of us are pure. And once we see once we stop looking for ideological purity, once we stop seeing perfection in ourselves and imperfection only in the other, then once we take that move, then we rediscover our humanity. And that is really what binds us as a society. If we don't do that, we will collapse. Inevitably, we will collapse. Yeah, I, 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 uh, it's a, a hopeful, but also, you know, it's something that we should all think about. Um, and now we've sort of, bit more time but uh there's one particular and it, it is um where the book ends i've kind of i've started the book at the end so um you can forget please forgive me for that um <laughs> but okay. um and i'm working my way uh forwards but uh a very important um uh person in your book is khaled al-assad who um 
uh, I mean, maybe you should just explain who he is and if uh, some of our listeners don't know. Um, well, Khaled al-Assad was, behind him. Yeah. Khaled al-Assad was uh, an archaeologist and, and, and he was really, this, he, he devoted his entire life um, to preserving the antiquities at the, uh, in, the, uh, in Palmyra in Syria. And, and of course, Palmyra is an, you know, an ancient city. And, and I discuss in the book, I discuss uh, two uh, um, separate incidents where the statue of, a, of Athena was, was attacked first in the fourth century by Christians and then in 2015 by ISIS. But really the story of, of Khaled al-Assad, which I conclude the book with, is, um, is really the story of, of, of a man who literally gave his life to preserve what he saw as a heritage that belonged to us all. And when ISIS uh, took Palmyra in uh, in 2015, you know, uh, Al Assad and his his, his uh, yeah, people who worked with him were were getting the statues and or getting the antiquities out of the city in in one direction as ISIS were approaching from the other. He himself could have fled, he could have gone and saved himself, but he decided to stay. He was 82, I think, 82 years old, and he said, "I'm an old man." They, they yeah, he they retired really... in 2003, hadn't he? And That's he right. Just but, kept but it... on working. He kept on working because yeah. it was his life work. Yeah. And and uh, and so when ISIS came into the city, they wanted to know where these antiquities were. They wanted to know because they either wanted to destroy them or they wanted to sell them on the black market to raise funds. He refused to tell them. They tortured him. He still refused to tell them. They let him go. They came back for him a few weeks later. He refused to tell them. They tortured him again. Uh, this time they didn't let him go. They beheaded him, hung him from a Roman column in Palmyra, then moved his beheaded body to a traffic light in, in the city of Palmyra um, and hung him using twine to the traffic light, put his head, still wearing his glasses, between his legs and hung a placard, uh, reminiscent, of course, of the struggle sessions of, 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 the, of the Cultural Revolution, and a placard around his neck, calling him the director of idolatry. And he gave his life, you know, he gave his life to preserve, really, at what is our our universal cultural um, heritage. And, and, and the point I, I make in the book really, and as many people who went to Palmyra, he was known as Mr. Palmyra. And there are many people who went to Palmyra who, who were inspired by him and his devotion to his work. He made discoveries also, archeological discoveries of his own. And, and, and really what he gave us there, and I think this is where the book ends, the gift in giving the gift of his own life really, to preserve a heritage that belongs to us all. That really was a, a gift of love. And, uh, and that's really what love is. When we, when we say we preserve things from the past for the future so that we can all learn the good and the bad from that past. We can all move forward as a species, as a human community and find what it is that binds us. Uh, there's a, a very famous novel by Thornton Wilder called The uh, the Bridge of San Luis Rey. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant, right? And you remember the end of that novel, and it's a short novel, it's more of a novella. And, and these people die crossing this bridge, and, 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 and the narrator of the book wants to find out who they were and what happened to them. But at the very end of the book, of course, this random act of misfortune, but they all happened to be crossing the bridge when the bridge collapsed. Um, he says that the bridge really becomes a metaphor, a metaphor for what connects us and what binds us. And, uh, and the bridge really is love. And he says that, that, that 
it's what connects us one to the other. And he says, and he calls it the only love. He said, the only survival, the only meaning. And that's really the message of the book. And that's Khaled al-Assad's message. And, and, uh, and the alternative, of course, is given to us in a very dark vision by the Jewish writer, Walter Benjamin, who, who um, gave us this vision of the angel of history. He, he fled France um, um, to avoid capture by the Nazis only to find only ultimately to commit suicide because he felt when he was sent back into France from Spain that uh, that his capture was inevitable so he killed himself but he left us with this metaphor which is one of the things I end the book with which is uh, the angel of history and he imagines this angel coming down from paradise and looking back at history all the horror all the wreckage all the waste and he wants to heal this he wants to put to back together what has been smashed. But as he's about to do this and turn to the future, a huge storm blows out of paradise. It forces his wings back. So he is condemned to be pushed towards the future to which his back is eternally turned. Facing the past where all he sees is wreckage piling upon wreckage, horror upon horror. And Benjamin makes the point, he said, the storm is what we call progress. Those are your two visions. Khaled al-Assad's gift of love, Benjamin's uh, angel of history. You know, and we need to make a choice. Well, that's an absolutely perfect way of ending it. Um, I don't know, uh, uh, that was brilliant. Um, so, I mean, th th this book is, is out now. It's A History of Love and Hate in 21 Statues. Um, a History of uh, Love and Hate in 21 Statues. Um, so, so uh, Peter, um, what are you planning on doing next? Are you going to stay in the history world, uh, adding in the psychology and, 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 and your philosophy? I think I'm, I'm, I'm writing, a, 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 I'm publishing a number of articles and doing a number of interviews, obviously, around, around this book. But I, I think... Uh, I, um, my next book will be uh, be working on um, on how why our current society is is breaking apart, building on those themes and and what we can do what we can do to stop it and and uh, and that's really what I'm working on now. And I'll be writing that. I've started it and I'll be writing it really through through next year. Oh, wonderful! I really look forward to reading that um, because I'm really enjoying this. This is fantastic. Um, so thank you so much for uh, for joining me um, and we will be in touch again soon because I want to get you back on the podcast to talk more uh, about this if possible yeah thank you very much for, for, for joining me great thank you very much Oliver. my pleasure thank you Peter brings an approach to his book his his and to history with that philosopher philosophical and a psychological bent that I think I well I certainly don't read many books like that and so this is a a book that I do I do think um, you should you should get a copy of it's out now I'll put a link in that in in the show notes but I think that you know that approach to history is really interesting and his book it, you'll race through it because it's all separated out into chapters uh, with a statue and explaining what um, the circumstances behind its removal or, or destruction or um, or knocking knocking over 
and and then he goes into all sorts of just fascinating stuff both history philosophy and, and psychology so i really do recommend it now um we mentioned a few things in that talk and i'm going to put links in the show notes if you're interested so there is the david olasoga book uh, black and british there was the documentary it's called statue wars it's on the iplayer the bbc iplayer it, it is available to watch uh, and that's from uh, david olasoga's production company i think it's presented by marvin reese actually and then there we talked about thornton wilder's brilliant book novella it is a novella it's very short it's brilliant i do recommend that that's the bridge of san Luis ray again i'll put a link in that and then finally right at the beginning uh, i talked about andrew gold his podcast on the edge so i'll put a link in for that as well so i really hope you enjoyed it i did uh, now next uh, we're looking at doing a, um, uh, an interview with the author andrew lowney and he has written a book about edward the eighth now he's the king who was king for about 10 months or so and he abdicated abdicated in 1936 and i've read that book and oh my uh, my jaw was on the floor reading about this man who well the title of the book is traitor king and i think that sums it up so i'm going now and I do hope you enjoyed this new format of podcast. As I say, please get hold of me, send me an email, or um, you can contact the Aspects of History Twitter account as well. And I've given those uh, links at the beginning. Thank you and good night.